Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, August 27th. Arden Zwelling here with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Thank you so much to them for all their help. As always, Ben, plenty to talk about today. The Blue Jays made a deal requiring Taiwan Walker. Obviously, MLB's trade deadline is approaching on Monday. I mean, the playoffs are technically approaching. Blue Jays like halfway through a 60-game season right now. It's as if we were entering, I don't know, September, which we, I mean, literally are. But, you know, in a normal season with like, you know, five months of baseball data behind us. So like there's tons going on with just the Blue Jays. But like we have to pull out to start here and take a bit more of a global perspective on things because obviously yesterday, Wednesday, August 26th, was a seminal day across North American sports, like an impactful day, an important day, like all those words, beginning with the Milwaukee Bucks, who led by example and refused to take the court in order to demonstrate against racial injustice and against the shooting of Jacob Blake, which I mean, not just the shooting of Jacob Blake, but I mean, you know, the police brutality that has been committed against black men and women in the United States and Canada for years and years and years and a list that we could spend, you know, the rest of this podcast just reading names from. So demonstrating against that and obviously teams across the WNBA demonstrated as well and several MLB teams did as well. Really, athletes across the continent protesting um, this tragic event in Wisconsin. If you haven't seen the video yet, the Jacob Blake video, I mean, you don't have to look hard to find it. And you can reach your own conclusion as to the brutality that occurred there. As it relates to the Blue Jays and Red Sox on Wednesday night, they did play, obviously. Ben, you covered the game. I did not. But my understanding is that these demonstrations came to light and the Milwaukee Bucks action came to light just as the Blue Jays and Red Sox had already taken the field and weren't even really able to join with the demonstration if they wanted to. Is that your understanding as well? Or no? um, uh, yeah, it's certainly the way the Blue Jays presented it. Yeah. I think there's never an easy time to take action and to make a stand. You know, It was not easy for the Milwaukee Bucks, I'm sure, to say this is the time that we need to stand up and actually step aside to create room for other voices. The Blue Jays' circumstances probably made it slightly harder for them to make that stand than, let's say, a team on the West Coast, like the Dodgers or Giants, that had the benefit of a little bit more time to join that conversation in stride as it was happening. Now, the Blue Jays still knew before first pitch. I mean, word travels fast. It's, you know, right. We live in a, in a very connected world, so... I don't know if I want to say that the Blue Jays couldn't have stopped playing if they didn't want to. And, you know, I was going to say, it's not even like it was Nate Pearson making his major league debut, but who cares? Even if Nate Pearson was making his major league debut, this is so much bigger than any individual team or in any individual person or any individual trade or playoff push. And look, like, you know, this, I love baseball minutia as much as anyone. I assume probably our listeners who, you know, stick with us through the, you know, the off season and some, you know, rebuilding seasons, probably a lot of people listening love baseball minutia. And for us, it's a distraction. It's an amazing distraction from whatever else, whatever other BS is, is going on in our own lives. Right. And, and it's great. Baseball is awesome for that. Sports are incredible, but you know, there are moments and this is obviously one of them where we have to just go beyond that and just say that this is not the time to be obsessing over Julian Merriweather's average fastball velo or Vlad Jr.'s exit velocity. And it's, it really is about a bigger conversation 
that stems from the systemic racism that exists in our society and more prominently in, in the US, but also in Canada. And that not only does that exist, but we need to continue to take steps to make changes on that front. And so I applaud all the teams and individuals that decided that it wasn't right to play on Wednesday. I wonder if we'll see more. I assume we probably will. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Probably a lot more developments are going to happen. But you know, to say it's important is, is an understatement. This is, is vital, vitally important. It's nice to see that, that conversation taking place. And, and like I said, I applaud those people who made that call. Yeah. And it's like, that's why the attention needs to be away from the field right now. Like that's why like the, you know, you mentioned it, sports shouldn't be a distraction right now. It shouldn't be taken away from a very necessary fight that is occurring and, and some demonstrations and, and protests that really have been occurring for not, not only months, but years, right? Like there's been demonstrations like, you know, in the streets in, in the United States over, um, you know, police brutality against black men for a long, long time. And not a lot has actually changed on institutional level or governmental level. And obviously those aren't things that happen overnight and like change is unfortunately, you know, so incremental when, when you're talking about like something as like deep seated as racism and, and, you know, something as, as institutional as the racism is in policing, not only in the United States, but in, in Canada too, it's, it's important to say. But I think that, you know, particularly with the NBA players, like it got to a point where, they were saying like it's what we're doing now isn't enough and we're just falling back into this kind of you know trend of like the, you know these issues get brought to the forefront you know like unfortunately something terrible happens on video and and we see it and it dominates a news cycle for 24 48 hours and we speak out against it and there are demonstrations about it and people change their instagram icons to a black square and then 48 hours after that news cycle it goes away and we're not talking about it anymore and it just becomes hey look at this wicked uh taiwan walker breaking ball like hey look at lebron's dunk and you know hey look at this cat video and it disappears and like pressure is not continuing to be applied so like that's why i think you know what the athletes did across north america was so powerful on wednesday i hope it occurs again here on thursday frankly and you know even still the fact that you know, this season, Anthony Alford was the only African-American in the clubhouse. And like, you know, the guy who was instigating a lot of the demonstrations that the Blue Jays were, you know, putting forward with wearing Black Lives Matters t-shirts and some of the kneeling that we saw on opening day with Anthony Alford and Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio. You know, Anthony obviously had a, you know, great chat with, with us in the media on a Zoom call that I wrote about and like, I would just encourage everybody to go read that. It's just his words. And I hope that people do read those words because they are really impactful and because they really like, he just, he articulated it better than I ever could, you know, or than you ever could, than any of us could who haven't personally like lived that life and haven't personally experienced what players are demonstrating against right now. Um, He's not with the Blue Jays anymore. You know, we can't even get him on a Zoom today to, you know, talk about it again and to continue sharing his message which is which is unfortunate so i just think you know mlb isn't that far off from like the nhl when it comes to inaction on social issues such as this you know it's they weren't the ones beginning all of this on on wednesday uh, and i think it has a lot to do with the lack of african-american representation within the sport right yeah absolutely i think that someone like alford you know even and I think it's a bonus when he's feels comfortable enough to present his experiences and thoughts 
to us in the media and by extension to the public. I mean, I think that's, that's great. But even long before he was a public voice on some of the racism that he has faced and continues to face as a black man, he was still having an impact on his teammates behind the scenes, right? And so you hear guys like Rowdy Telez talking about how close he is to Anthony Alford and how much that friendship means to him. And that's not something that's just emerged in the last couple of months. They've known each other for years. And so it really is important. You know, you think about workplaces in general, you know, obviously major league baseball clubhouses are, are a workplace. And, and if you don't have a black player, then you're going to be missing an important perspective. I think that's pretty clear. And I would agree with you, Arden. I mean, I think I was thinking about it this morning. I'm thinking like they postpone games because of rain, like, you know, or, or snow, you know, you can postpone a game because of the systemic racism that exists in our world. It's sort of what it's about, right? Is that um, the measures that have been taken as far as, you know, what MLB did and uh, they brought out the black ribbon on opening day and you put something on the scoreboard and you listen to the NBA players and they you know, they're talking about how like, yeah, it's great that I'm sitting in front of like a banner behind me that says black lives matter on it. And you know, like, like it's great that we've had all these gestures, but like, what is it really doing? You know, like is anybody actually changing anything? Is anybody actually, you know, are we just following like this like same cycle of inaction and indifference with just some, you know, like, placating measures taken by leagues say yeah no we're like we're with you like we're here on it like this is what they're protesting in the first place is that this cycle continues in which you know young black members of our community are you know brutalized by police and everyone turns a blind eye or just papers over it right and just kind of you know takes really ineffective measures that don't really change anything that's what's really struck me right like is watching like I love the NBA, man, and like so, I, like watching players and coaches speak over the last few days, it's been so tough to to see them this way, right? Like, pe- like people are gonna say, uh, "Oh, it's so inspiring what they're doing," or like you know, like it's so moving, like you know what they're saying, and like I guess it's kind of heartbreaking to me, man. Like it's kind of sad that these guys are clearly speaking from um, like a place of defeat right and of being disillusioned and demoralized right that you know what they are doing or what they're attempting to do with their platform is not being effective like you're seeing these guys questioning why they're in that bubble at all and why despite all their efforts like we aren't seeing meaningful change or like questioning whether anyone's really there with them in this fight or if it's all for naught, like, I don't know, for me, that's really tough to watch. Um, And that's affected me really deeply seeing it. Just like speaking to Anthony Alford, you know, before you CFA'd about these issues really affected me differently. And I can't like urge people enough to go read that piece. It's not, I barely write in it. It's just his words. And like his words are so powerful with the experiences that he, you know, relayed from growing up before he was an athlete, right? Like before he had made money or, you know, made it to, the big leagues, like when he was just like a young black kid growing up in poverty and like what that life was like and what that life is still like for, you know, countless people who have like really terrible interactions with police officers that aren't caught on video that we don't see on the news, right? Like it's so funny how the, just the presence of video evidence like changes, like think about, uh, I'm on a tangent here, but think about the Masai Ujiri incident, right? Speaking of the NBA, right? For like, a year, we 
in the media and people who, you know, like talk about this stuff had to say, well, the officer alleges that this happened and the officer has filed a lawsuit that says that, uh, you know, Masai Jiri was being aggressive or belligerent or, you know, whatever this clown said, right? It was all lies, right? It was all BS. It was all made up. And now we have a video and we can see what actually happened and we can see that, you know, this police officer was like completely out of his rights to, you know, essentially assault Masai Ujiri just because he's a black man trying to enter the court to celebrate an NBA championship with a team that he is the president of. Meanwhile, several white people walked onto that court without credentials that, you know, were not treated the same way. Like it's there on video, but until we have the video, we don't really talk about it that way. And we don't really see it that way. So you think about the fact that we have Jacob Blake on video or you know Tamir Rice on video or George Floyd on video like that changes the discussion so much my point here is that you know Anthony Alford really told us about the people who like these things happen to them but it's not videotaped and it's not a news cycle thing it doesn't dominate the headlines it's just like another name on the list you know so like seeing these NBA players how disillusioned they are and demoralized they are with the lack of change and the lack of progress that has occurred despite all of this conversation over the last several months it's been really tough and so that's why you know I do hope that we we see more demonstrations here on on Thursday but I'm not sure we will we'll see yeah who knows it would be great to see the NHL postpone their games as well I mean I mean it's not like they have to worry about venues you know it's not like they have to worry about logistics and travel I mean it's this is kind of a layup, really. It's disappointing that they, you know, when you're already just bubbled off and you're controlling your own schedule and environment, it's like, what's, why would you not take the moment to just let other causes have the spotlight? But, you know, going back to your point about Masai Ujiri, as we kind of, I guess, touch on other sports, and it's all connected here, you know, in the yeah. course of MLS didn't play, the WNBA didn't play. All these sports are feeding off each other, drawing inspiration from each other, which is great to see because, you know, some of what's happening really is inspiring when you think about the Milwaukee Bucks. But with the Maasai video, you know, it goes back to a, a comment that I saw a lot of people make a couple months ago when some of this was entering the discussion in a broader way. And it's just the idea that there's not more racism now. It's just that more racist acts are caught on video. But you think about the kind of thing that even Anthony Alford is a young guy. You know, when he was growing up, there wouldn't have been a cell phone in his hand at all times. And so especially growing up in a, in a poor background, in a poor neighborhood, I mean, absolutely not. So it's a totally different challenge. And it, it's great to see that people are speaking up and, and, and going beyond the words. I mean, you think about those basketball players who are not, like you say, it's not just tweeting a Black Lives Matter hashtag it's really going beyond that. And they are putting their own livelihood and their own schedules and their own agendas aside for the purposes of a much broader and very important discussion. Because they're in a highly visible position to do so, right? Like if, you know, Joe Blow, who like works at the mall, does that, like it's not news, right? Like when these guys do that. loses actually, his job, right? <laughs> honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, right? And it's not something that can actually create change like so these these athletes have that influence and that power to actually you know create change and to impact society and make the world a better place for those that come after us it is it is heartening that they are you know using that leverage with what is you know essentially a strike right like it's like it's incorrectly referred to as boycott it's essentially a strike like it's it's workers refusing to provide labor 
in response to a grievance, right? And it's like, it's a societal grievance, right? Like, and, um, you know, it's, it's a grievance of, of life in, in society. It's not necessarily a grievance over, you know, unsafe working conditions or, or wages or something, but it is still something that is not right. And it's still a human decency issue. And I think that was, you know, that's really the case in, in the NBA. And I'm sure they, like, I'm sure it was, you know, part of the thinking for, you know, the Brewers and the Reds and, and the Dodgers and the other MLB teams that refused to play last night as well. But I think in the NBA, especially like you were seeing, you know, workers kind of using the biggest lever they have to pressure ownership, to pressure those who, you know, actually interact with those in power and with governmental entities. Like you think about, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks and how important they are to that community in Wisconsin where, you know, the Jacob Blake incident occurred. You think about all the the money that they generate and the influence on the economy and the amount of people that they employ. I mean, Milwaukee Bucks ownership has the power to, you know, lobby governments and to talk to people on not only the local level, but even the, the federal level, right? And the state level and to urge those people to create some of the reform that is clearly needed in, in, in terms of policing and in terms of the way the black people are, are treated in, in American society, you know, like they have that influence to create that systemic change to at least like push the boulder like a little bit, right. To just, to just move it a little bit. So like, I really think that was the motive to send that message to ownership. Because it's like, it's not just about awareness anymore, right, Ben? Like, I think we're all perfectly aware. <laughs> like, I think we all know now. If at this point, like, you still don't know why athletes are, like, demonstrating or why they're protesting, I mean, you're, like, you're just willfully ignorant, yeah. right? Like, you're, you're just choosing not to listen. And you're choosing not to engage with it. And, like, you can, like, freak right off. Like, because it's, it's very clear. We're all very aware. Like, I think now... It's time for for people who can actually make the necessary changes to make them and to do more than just issue hollow PR statements or, you know, give everybody a Black Lives Matter t-shirt or display a message on a on a scoreboard. Yeah, exactly. Or even, you know, kneeling and holding a ribbon before the anthem, but not necessarily for the anthem. Yeah. You know, those those are kind of half measures to me. You know, you see the these vague statements such as the one the Major League Baseball issued on Thursday, and it's like, you know, we're committed to the fight against these ills of society and it's like all right i mean aren't we all right like what, what does that really say yeah. um and and so i think in that context it's not to say that everyone has to not everyone is going to be a leader in this discussion there are going to be followers and that's okay that's followers are an important part of this discussion as well but you know when, when i think about the leaders in this discussion like the milwaukee bucks uh, you know that's wow it, it really is impressive and I, I even think you know in a baseball context you think about guys like Jason Hayward or Matt Kemp or Jack Flaherty or Dexter Fowler who decided on their own I don't want to say without the support of their teams but certainly without the full support of their teams and they pulled themselves out of games on Wednesday and that's to me that's an example of taking a stand in a really strong way and 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 showing some leadership in a strong way as well so like I said, followers are important too. I assume that you know most of us are, are probably going to be in that category. The Milwaukee Bucks are the leaders in this, and and there are the other voices too, of course, throughout sports and society. But you know, seeing those leaders and acknowledging them, I think, is important. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to take, you know, white players, white coaches, white front office members, um, you know, Latin members of, of organizations. I mean, everybody in the organization to, you know, stand with the black players who are demonstrating right now and who are saying like, hey, people in my communities where I grew up, people who I know, my family members, my friends, my members of, of my community are suffering right now under this every single day and people need to listen and people need to help us change it. They're going to need that support in baseball because like I said, 8% of ball players are black, you know, and like Adam Jones and Anthony Alford and like really any black player who has spoken out about this has indicated how isolating it can be, right? And how on an island they feel like they are and how they feel like there is always the threat of the sport moving on without them. You know, like Bruce Maxwell takes a knee, backup catcher for the Oakland A's, and then like a year later is out of the league entirely right and and they notice things like that go ahead then yeah and even think about alford and jones right you mentioned them as as spokespeople for for the league and neither one of them is playing major league baseball right now neither one of them is on a roster as we record this because jones is playing in the npb and and alford is in dfa limbo so i mean even some of the you know it goes to show like that there is a shortage of of black voices uh, within baseball and it puts a lot of pressure david singh wrote a great piece about this Senate.ca, but it puts a lot of pressure on the small number of black players who do play to speak for everyone. And that has, has got to be a burden uh, as well for guys like Curtis Granderson or Jackie Bradley Jr., who in a lot of cases are being approached to talk about this in a disproportionate way. We'll take a quick break here because there's no smooth transition uh, into baseball matters, but we do have to talk baseball in the Toronto Blue Jays. So uh, after the break, we will talk about the Blue Jays acquiring Taiwan Walker, heading towards the trade deadline, how they've been performing on the field, playoff team, Blue Jays, perhaps odds are looking pretty good. Talk about all that and much more when we continue on At The Letters. Strike three called. Taiwan Walker cooking tonight. Eight strikeouts. He has been brilliant. What a job tonight for Taiwan Walker. All right, Ben, some baseball news to discuss as the Blue Jays have bolstered their starting rotation for uh, the second half of this shortened MLB season by acquiring Taiwan Walker from the Seattle Mariners, 28-year-old right-hander. Four pitches, fastball, curveball, kind of a slider cutter, and and a change-up, a guy that we haven't seen too much at the big league level over the last several seasons as he's dealt with some some injury stuff, as he's had Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, you can kind of look back on, you know, 2017 and before that when he was very effective at the big league level, but just sort of considering, you know, how little of him we've seen at the big league level over the last three seasons, Ben, where do you kind of set expectations for what the Blue Jays are adding to their to their rotation right now? I think the expectation is, can he give you five or six innings? Can he allow three runs per start? I mean, just keep them in the game. Similar to Chase Anderson or Matt Shoemaker or Tanner Roark, I don't think the expectation is for him to be anything resembling a frontline pitcher. I think it's really just keep them in the game. And the nice thing is, and you're right to say, you know, it's not like he has logged as many innings as you might expect from that traditional innings eating starter. But at the same time, they only have what five, six starts to go for, for Walker, if all goes well in this season. So he's there to get them through a month. It's not to get them through six months. And I think if you view it that way, I mean, his chances of doing that seem pretty good because he's been performing well so far in, in 2020. 
Yeah, he has. And, you know, the two things that stuck out to me about him in 2020, which, you know, maybe maybe not what you'd expect. This is a guy who's gone seven innings twice so far this season and a guy who's been up over 100 pitches this season. Ben, do you know how many Toronto Blue Jays starters have gone seven innings or been up over 100 pitches this season? Well, I do know, but only because you mentioned it earlier, and I believe the number is zero. That is correct. Ding, 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 ding. Zero. Not a single Blue Jay starter. It's been up over 100 pitches or gone seven innings. Uh, Hunjin Ryu's gone six and been up into the 90s, but he's the only guy who's even really been close. So right now is the Blue Jays have really been piecing it together with their pitching staff over the last little bit as Matt Shoemaker's gone down and Trent Thornton, who is going to miss the rest of the season, and Nate Pearson, who obviously was lost to injury. Uh, a lot has been asked of this club's bullpen. It's responded actually in like a really good way for them. They've gotten some terrific performances out there, but you can burn out a bullpen real fast, man, particularly with the schedule that the Blue Jays are, are playing right now with as many games in as many days as they have without any off days built in and only two more off days coming up between now and the end of the season. So I think that even just a little bit of length and just some like effective major league innings out of Taiwan Walker is going to be the biggest benefit. Like if he strikes out a batter in an inning, great. You know, if he has an ERA below league average, terrific. Like those are bonuses. But I think more than anything, the Blue Jays just getting somebody who's going to be able to take the mound every five days and give them six or seven innings which hasn't necessarily been, you know, the most common thing in, in their rotation to this point. Exactly. I mean, you look at who he's replacing, and it's a bullpen game. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw them on Wednesday night. They got by. They had a great outing from Julian Merriweather. Really uh, impressive bulk outing afterwards from Shunya Maguchi. Those are great signs from the Blue Jays. But do you want to rely on that going forward on an ongoing basis as you're trying to make the playoffs, as you're trying to reinforce a, a young roster you don't want to overexpose your young arms. Of course, you don't want to rely on patching it together. You'd rather have someone who can give you some steady innings. And, you know, again, it's not like you're signing him to a four-year deal. He's a free agent after this, after this month. Like, the financial commitment is minimal. We don't know exactly what the prospect return is. My guess from the outside looking in, and Ross Atkins didn't answer this um, when he was asked about it earlier uh, today, my guess is it's a decent prospect, um, but someone who's not in the Blue Jays player pool. And that will probably be revealed, you know, after the season, um, maybe early October. But, you know, the acquisition cost is pretty reasonable. Walker's a pretty good pitcher. To me, that's just a simple, easy deal that you have to make. Yeah, it's hard to comment on the acquisition cost, right? Because we don't know who it's going to be. Like, it might be a prospect that, you know, some of, you know, kind of the nerdier Blue Jays fans will like, right? Like, it might be a guy that they've been dreaming on or they've been thinking like, oh, hey, like maybe this guy could be something. You know, Ross Atkins kind of indicated that he thought the price wasn't too dissimilar from what you would normally pay for a rental of Taiwan Walker's caliber during a a typical regular season, which is kind of interesting because I was very interested in like how this season would impact the prices that you pay. You're acquiring a guy for a month. And in the case of starting pitcher like Tywin Walker, I mean, you know, five starts, six starts tops at the absolute most. It made me wonder just kind of how the prices would be impacted here. And it's not like the Blue Jays are, you know, taking on a bunch of cash here, right? And, you know, freeing up some a ton of payroll for the Mariners. You know, it, if anything, like that's a bit of a benefit to the Blue Jays in this deal is that it shouldn't, tie their hands from doing too much more right like they should be able to do more after this because 
Taiwan Walker is making $2 million this year. So you prorate that down to the 60 games and I don't know, 700K, 700 something K and change. Chop that in half because half season's already been played. So I don't know, 350K basically until you're looking at here somewhere around there, like napkin math. The Blue Jays should be able to still take on payroll and other deals here and should be able to kind of flex that muscle, you know. And you can make an argument that the Blue Jays are like in one of the best positions in baseball to be active at this deadline and to acquire talent, not only because of that money aspect, but also because of how deep their prospect pool is, right? And, you know, because of, you know, how they built out this system to being a top five system in baseball ball they should have plenty of young talent that other teams are interested in they should have plenty of you know depth at certain positions so you know i would expect that you know for those reasons the blue jays should continue to be active as we get towards monday absolutely i think the jays are in a really good position to be active here there's no question about it and it starts with a need i mean this is not a perfect roster we've said that for a while now i think that's that's pretty obvious when you look at the pitching staff, which still has uh, one rotation spot that's very much open. You know, we're not looking at an imminent return from Matt Shoemaker, who's week to week, or from Nate Pearson, who's going to hopefully start throwing again this weekend. That does not sound like an imminent return situation to me, Trent Thornton out for the year. So you need pitching. That's clear. And it's not just this year that they need pitching. They need pitching going into next year. Because if the last month has reminded us of anything... It's that you, you know, this is such a baseball cliche, but it's so true. You can never have enough pitching, right? And they go into this year and it's like, oh, how are they going to fit, you know, Trent Thornton and Anthony Kay and all these guys onto the staff? And what about Yamaguchi? Is he going to start? Or look, like you just have to add pitchers and keep adding pitchers and never stop adding pitchers. Like that's, that's how it works. You have to, you have to do that. And so this is a need that's ongoing for this team. If they can add someone who is under team control, Going into 2021, that's even better. But clearly, pitching is one area for them. I wonder about catching. And I think in all likelihood, their catching discussion probably is, you know, I don't think that's front burner. Obviously, pitching is the front burner. I wonder about catching a little bit as I start to contemplate free agent targets for the Jays. You know, it's not just the outfielders like uh, Michael Brantley, for example. But I, I started wondering about JT Realmuto. Like, I think the Jays this offseason need to have that conversation and, and pursue him um, pretty aggressively. But, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. I think right. back to this deadline, you know, I think you look at the bench, it's just, it's pretty obvious that guys like Joe Panic and Brandon Drury are not performing and there's a clear way to upgrade. So you, you got to look at that as well. Well, yeah, and when you, you look at how Ross Atkins will characterize it as, well, we're really interested in acquiring run prevention, you know, and addressing our run prevention right now. That doesn't necessarily mean just pitchers. That can mean a catcher as well, because a catcher has a lot of say in that in terms of game calling, in terms of framing, in terms of you know blocking balls and defensively, and just all the little you know minutia that goes on to being a catcher behind the plate. Like Blue Jays fans were so spoiled by Russell Martin for years and years and years, and they're kind of seeing right now with some of the development that's occurring with Danny Jansen and Reese McGuire at the big league level, you know how long it can take to really become polished as a big league catcher and really learn you know how to unite and night out, present balls properly, receive them properly, game call, handle a pitching staff, manage a starter, be on the same page, not get crossed up, you know, be athletic behind the plate, controlling the running game. I mean, there's just like a billion things to go into it. So maybe you're right. 
maybe that is a catcher. Maybe that's somebody who can help improve this team defensively. You know, it's it's been a problem for this club, you know, at, at times this season. It's the defense has not been super crisp. Like, I think that within the Blue Jays front office, like, they're probably pretty confident in their offense, you know, at, at this point. Like, you can add, you know, obviously Daniel Vogelback gives them another bench bat, right? And somebody who they're hoping can be better than he's been to this point this season. It could be more like he was in 2019. And you certainly feel a lot better about you know, pinch hitting him late in the game than say having a, a Joe Panic or a Brandon Drury, you know, at, at bat, you know, in a crucial moment where you really need a big plate appearance. So maybe there can be a bit of a, you know, maybe there could be something addressed there. But, you know, I think for the most part, I feel like Teoscar Hernandez and Randall Gritschuk are going to continue to swing the bat well and hit for a bunch of power. And they feel that Kevin Biggio is going to keep getting on base and, and keep putting up really, really great plate appearances. And I'm sure they feel that Bo Bichette's going to come back and pick up where he left off. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is going to turn around. And, you know, Rowdy Tellez will continue to be a strong contributor. And, like, Lourdes Guerrero Jr. is really underperformed to this point. Like, considering his track record, you would expect that he's going to be better. So I think that they're probably pretty confident in the offense. But how they get better at preventing runs, whether that's with better pitching, better catching, better defense. I think that's got to be the focus going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so they can afford to pursue a lot of different angles here. And Ross Atkins was saying that in the course of the conversations that the Blue Jays are having with other teams, they haven't been cut out on anyone. So, you know, does that mean, and you know, this is kind of entering speculation territory right here, but you know, a, a guy like Mike Clevenger, who pitches for Cleveland, where obviously Atkins uh, worked before coming to Toronto, you, you could look at a guy like Zach Plesak. Those are guys where the acquisition cost would be very high. The Blue Jays are not cut off there. So it's interesting because I think that the team's preference would be to add players who can join this core, guys who can contribute and become a long-term piece. That's clearly you know, preferable to going out there and just adding a rental. Walker helps. That's great. That's a good step. But I think it's more of a first step than a final step. And while the Blue Jays don't have full control over this, you know, it takes two people to complete a trade. It takes two organizations to kind of agree that this is the right path forward for them. But I do think that if the Blue Jays could have it their way, they would part with some of their prospect depth. They would acquire some more pitching. And ideally, that pitching would have control. Well, with Clevenger, I mean, you're getting term, right? Like you were getting that control you're getting several years and that's why the asking price i imagine is going to be sky high but that is the type of impact player young controllable starting pitcher proven at the big leagues that does not come on the market very often you know and like that could prove to be the blue jays like chris sale deal right you know like that could you know prove to be one one of the really big trades if they were to execute it that like really turned around to rebuild really fast and where you would need to use some like really high touted prospect capital in order to acquire a player of that ability clearly but that is also a guy who immediately steps into your rotation and is like at the very least the number two behind Hunjin Ryu in terms of talent on your pitching staff right now and perhaps even the best pitcher that you have I mean the upside of a Mike Clevenger is is massive and and being able to you know have the uh I always hate myself for using terminology like this, but the contractual control <laughs> over him for a few years is like, you know, that's the, what every front office dreams of. I mean, the, the big thing for the Cleveland organization right now is I think they probably want major league talent. And 
in return, right? You know, we saw they wanted that last year at the deadline in the Trevor Bauer deal. And this is sort of a similar situation in which it's a, you know, a player with some term left to, you know, I can't speculate, but maybe they've, you know, soured on a little bit due to, I don't know, you know, just clubhouse stuff or off the field stuff or whatever, which is... I, I don't think that's speculation. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. <laughs> you know, I'm not that close to it. You know, so that's why this player is even like available in the first place, why they might be somewhat motivated to move a young, really good pitcher who's under contract, who hasn't even, I don't even think Clevenger's hit arbitration yet. I think he's about to. That also might be a motivator for Cleveland is that he might be about to get off the expensive and they may not want to pay Mike Clevenger uh, what he's due through arbitration. So maybe that also is what's making him available. But my point here is Cleveland's still trying to contend right now. Like they're still trying to win today and they were trying to do that last deadline of Trevor Bauer. So that's why you saw in that deal, they, they acquired major league talent. I wonder if the Blue Jays would have that like current big league talent that either Cleveland would covet or the Blue Jays would be willing to surrender in order to consummate that deal or if the Blue Jays would have to kind of get creative and look at like a three-team framework where they are trading prospects to Team X and Team X is sending big league talent to Cleveland and Cleveland is sending Mike Clevenger to the Blue Jays. That's interesting. I could see a three-team scenario entering, entering the works for sure. And, and I can say the calls have been really active around Major League Baseball. So it's not like even amidst this time of, of turmoil for the sport, um, on many levels, both pandemic and, and as far as social justice, the calls continue. Major League Baseball general yeah. managers are talking trades. So there's a possibility that that's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I think that adding someone, some sort of high-end starting pitcher, you know, you just, you need those guys. They're so hard to acquire. It would be great if they could do that. And, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but we are at the midway point in the season, right? So it's not crazy. We're halfway through the year. The Blue Jays are in playoff position. I don't think it's putting the cart before the horse to say, what does this team look like in a playoff series? And if I start looking at that, Ryu starts game one. Okay, great. And then what? Like, honestly, who's your number? Who's your game two starter? Who's your game three? Probably Matt Shoemaker. And I don't know. If how, he's healthy. Isn't Nate, yeah. Is Nate Pearson healthy and effective? Right. We don't know that those guys are going to be healthy, right? And yeah. until they're back... The thing is, I, I just have a hard time penciling those guys in even until they return to the mound. You're talking about a lat issue for Shoemaker, unclear. You know, he's week to week. That's what we know right now. Pearson not throwing just yet. How stretched out will he be? Will he be ready for even five innings by the time uh, the playoffs start in basically a month and a few days? So you need arms. Like uh, ultimately, it would be okay to just have a bullpen game. That's kind of how the playoffs work anyway, a lot of the time. So it's not a crazy idea just to go with Hatch and let's say Anthony Kay for one game, and then and maybe you piggyback another combination of starters for another game. But the point being, they could use more pitching. I wouldn't hate that mad science experiment, right? Of, you know, yeah, yeah, two innings of Hatch, three innings of Kay. Here's Julian Merriweather to like yeah. blow it out for, you know, an inning and a third. Yep. Here's, you know, Bass to clean up that final two thirds. And like, here's like Jordan Romano for as long as it takes to get us to the finish line. That's right. Baraki for, you know, key yeah. lefty matchup if you need it. He's been walking some guys lately, but still has, has that strikeout ability. But then, okay, so let's say that's game two. All right. So let's say you're one on one. Ryu does his thing the first game. Then, and then what are you doing game three? You know, like then, <laughs> yeah. you know, are, are you going to do an opener with like Dolis and then go to Yamaguchi. Like, I don't know. And we're going, this is now going way ahead of ourselves, but it's kind of fun to talk about. And, and again, it's, 
I know we just had opening day like a few podcasts yeah. ago, but it's also like almost the stretch run now. So it's almost like time to start talking about these things. It's just such such a bizarre year. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because for the last several seasons, the Blue Jays have been like the position of, you know, Seattle or Cleveland with the starting pitcher they're looking to auction off, right? Like whether it was like Jay Happ or Marcus Stroman. And like now it's vice versa, right? Like now the Blue Jays are competing with clubs that are, you know, perpetually in the market for starting pitching because they're potentially perpetually contending, whether it's the Yankees or the Astros or whatever, right? And the I would assume the Seattle had other offers for Taiwan Walker, right? Like he was, you know, a, a top arm available. So the Blue Jays clearly had to, I would assume, outbid other clubs. So like they are competing now on that market, which is like a very interesting reversal from where they were at this time, you know, 12 months ago. And it's also indicating that the Blue Jays like are going in on this season. Like they're saying like, we have a real opportunity here. We believe in this group, like we're winning now. Like that's probably not getting said enough is that some of these moves that the Blue Jays have been making indicate like we are trying to win in 2020. Like it's here, Blue Jays fans. The Blue Jays are trying to win. It's here. It's happening right now. And not only are they trying to win, they're winning more than they lose. I mean, yeah. they're, they're actually, they're doing it. They're, yeah. they're winning more games than they lose. And that's a lot more fun than watching a team lose 95 <laughs> games with a pitching staff that was, you know, non-existent. We, I kind of had a flashback to 2019 this week, you know, the opener and a guy moments when they're kind of right. doing two bullpen games in the span of three days. It's like, oh no, this, <laughs> I didn't need to watch <laughs> this again. You know, I saw enough of that last year. But, you know, even the small thing like a guy in Thomas Pannone being TFA, I think that underscores the overall improvement of depth that the Blue Jays have built in the last year because mm -hmm. Thomas Pannone was starting games for this team a year ago this month and now he's not on the roster. That's the way it should be. Thomas Pannone didn't pitch that great. So I think that when you look at, at the, that improvement, that's why they're winning. But yeah, you know, to your point, Arden, I think this, this team is winning. They're looking to add. They're looking to... I don't think any of the best teams in baseball go like all in in the kind of like way that we might conceive of teams going all in. It's not yeah. really the mode that front offices operate under, but the Blue Jays are pushing to win now. And so far it's been working and it's been pretty entertaining. Yeah, you're always balancing the short term with the long term. Um, and when you look at the short term right now, like the Blue Jays have just been presented this like hilarious situation where so all of a sudden, like on you know, 45 minutes before the season, it was like, hey, there's eight playoff teams now. You're already in a 60 game season when like crazy stuff can happen. And now we're halfway through and it's oh, by the way, the Boston Red Sox are putrid and Los Angeles Angels with like three of the best players on the planet can't do anything for whatever reason. So like those are like coming into the season, you would think, okay, so the Blue Jays are going to be competing with like the Red Sox and Angels for like one of those final playoff spots. Those teams are completely off the map. Like those teams are each like 11 games under 500. So like with a, you know, 30 games to go essentially, probably even less like in, in their cases, because I don't think they've had any postponements like other teams have had. So the Blue Jays are in like this gift scenario where it's like you are competing with the Baltimore Orioles and uh, Kansas City Royals or like, I don't know, Detroit Tigers. Like, who are you competing with? You're competing here with teams that on paper should be far, far worse than you and should be projected to not win as many games as you are. 
over the next 30 days. So the Blue Jays have this great short-term opportunity to qualify for the postseason and get into the dance. And then anything can happen once you get in. Like that's always been the modus operandi. Like get into the postseason, just get there, just qualify because it's a crazy tournament and crazy things happen in tournaments. That's why March Madness is so thrilling because, you know, sometimes number one seeds lose, man. Like sometimes like, Blue Jays go into a three-game series, you know, I don't know, in Tampa or if it's going to be in Oakland or New York, like wherever it's going to be, Hunjin Ryu shoves, right, in game one, throws, you know, eight innings shutout and Jordan Romano closes the door and you win like a 2-1 game or something. And then in game two, you string together, like we were mentioning, like uh, Hatch, K, Barucki, Meriwether, Romano, bullpen day all of a sudden, and you get a couple of big swings from Grichuk and Teoscar, and now all of a sudden you're into the second round. Right? Like That's what it could be. But on the flip side of that, then, is that it's not like the Blue Jays are you know, using like current, in other words, I hate using assets. I, are, it's not like they're you know using current capital to like, bolster a club that is in first place right and that is gonna win a division this is a club that is likely to be you know number seven or number eight in the playoffs and to be going into that three game series in the other team's ballpark with the odds against them playing a very good team so then that's kind of whereas the push i gave earlier here is the pull of the like if you used like a young prospect who hasn't made his big league debut yet but like you know is a very tantalizing guy and could have a very promising future if you expend someone like that to get a rental or to get a win now player and it doesn't go your way well, you're probably not going to be loving making that trade if you lose two games in the first two games of that series. Like if you just get blown out and wiped out of the playoffs, your playoff run is done after 48 hours. So like it is like a very interesting line the Blue Jays are walking here in managing this like really unique short-term opportunity with the long-term vision of what they've built and the contending team they hope to be in 21, 22, 23 when, I mean, who knows, but you, you hope we're back to 162-game seasons and proper schedules. That's right. I, I think if you have a chance to win, you should take it, and the Jays have a chance to win. Now, it obviously doesn't mean giving up big-time prospects for rentals. I think that would be reckless. Jays aren't going to do that. I mean, it's, I think that's pretty clear. Even if Trevor Bauer is available, they're not, they're not giving up the farm for him. So, I, you know, I think that it does add a, a whole lot of intrigue, and, and it's funny, you know, when you talk about the Tigers and Orioles being the team that's the teams that are, you know, behind the Blue Jays in the, in the standings, that is a gift. I mean, to right. they obviously should be able to outplay those teams. Those teams are very flawed. So in a sense, the Jays are playing against themselves. There are a lot of rookies on this team. A lot of rookie mistakes uh, have been made already and they have to get out of their own way at times, but there's a lot of talent there too. And so if that talent can shine through, they can get enough pitching then this is a team that can be pretty interesting and it's it's crazy you know you, you, just going back to that scenario that you outlined with the the game two you know kind of mixing and matching the, the pitching and it's like thomas hatch and julian merriweather and these like essential components of a potential playoff elimination game and you think back to like six weeks ago and neither one of them had pitched in the majors right and you know they're these rookies these total unknowns but th- that's it i mean our world is changing quickly the baseball world is changing quickly those guys are performing like great they should be in that discussion like i think you're right i think they would be but it's just such a reminder of man do things ever change fast 
you know, Thomas Hatch who comes over in a, in a David Phelps trade and Julian Merriweather, who was like, by the way, had like the most unfair ride through his first, however many months it was since the Josh Donaldson deal, right? Of like, does this guy even exist? And where is he? And did it like, like all the terrible, terrible jokes. And who is now here like dotting 98 on either side of the plate with like wipeout breaking balls and looking composed and calm and confident on the mound and like showing, you know, why the Blue Jays acquired him and why they, you know, kept saying they were excited about him, even as his Tommy John uh, recovery didn't go the way that anybody expected it to, right? Like, can, like, can you imagine the story the Blue Jays would be if those were the guys who were helping them do it against a first place team in a year in which they didn't know where their home schedule was going to be played. They had these crazy road trips. They had a COVID outbreak before the season. And then they had a weird sort of three, four day stretch where they didn't play any games because of, you know, other another team's coronavirus outbreak. And, you know, they, they had all this insane adversity and Bo Bichette was injured. Nate Pearson debuted. And it didn't go the way anybody thought that it was going to go. And, you know, Ken Giles was injured. And imagine if he like came back at, end of September and looked like, you know, the, the Ken Giles that everybody has gotten used to seeing, right? Like it, there is like the potential for a super cool story here. And you can kind of like hear the storyteller and be like rooting for it. And being like, You've already written the draft, man. You're, you're ahead of it. Let's go. Right. <laughs> um, but just as like quickly as fortunes have changed for the Blue Jays, where they're in this like great position today, like, I don't know, in two weeks could go the other way. Right. Like we've seen, you know, you make a great point, man. Like, time in 2020 is just a different thing than what we have you know been used to you know over the first 19 years of the 2000s basically like things just move at a a a different pace so like we we weren't having conversations like this ben you know two or three weeks ago right so two or three weeks from now we'll see what the conversations are but the you know it's like i don't think that it is uh like pollyannic to say that like the blue jays are in a pretty good position right now for the rest of the season they're in a playoff spot right like i mean that's that's as simple as it gets and then if if you take advantage of the weak spots in their schedule if you reinforce this roster a bit you avoid some catastrophic injuries i mean you mentioned giles too and of all the pitchers who are trying to come back he might be the furthest along now that he's throwing off a mound so it's not crazy to think that he could be back within a week or 10 days even so i think you add all of that up and like you said, you never know, but man, like it, it would be silly to be in this position and not to wonder, you know, what would happen if they make the playoffs or what, do, what has to happen for them to make the playoffs. They're playing pretty well. You know, we, we said going into this season, strange things can happen and strange things are definitely happening. And so, you know, let's, <laughs> let's see, see where it goes. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's exactly kind of the mad science experiment that we expected it to be. And yeah, you know, with everything that's been going on in, in the world and everything that needs to obviously be at, you know, the, the forefront and that the attention has to be on. I mean, the, the baseball that we've gone to watch and kind of the uh, the season that we've had play out has been pretty fascinating. It's been pretty interesting. I expect that it will continue to be through the trade deadline on Monday and then through the final month of the season, then into the playoffs, which very likely are going to include Toronto Blue Jays. Who thought we'd be sitting here on August 27th saying that then? That's Ben Nixon-Smith. I'm Arden Zwelling. Mike Tassoni helped us with the video. Christian Ryan helped us with the audio. We thank them very much. We thank you for listening. Talk to you next week on At The Letters. Letters.